90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty good this week. How about yourself, John? Oh, not too bad. We are still in the, the throes of maintenance, as <laughs> seems to be usual in our lab. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't even want to talk about it. My blood pressure will rise beyond um, beyond everything. I, I will tell you I'm meeting with an engineer tomorrow, so you know how bad it's gotten that we've had to go to the electrical engineers to help us out. <laughs> so, um, had, yeah. had to bring in the engineers for your magnetometer? Yeah, exactly. So it's quite painful for me, and um, that's that's all I want to say about it. <laughs> Well, we've had uh, squirting hydraulic fluid shooting <laughs> off the ceiling in the lab recently. Like for fun or <laughs> no? No, like things broke and there oh, were jets okay. of high pressure hydraulic fluid. Yeah, that's not good either. <laughs> okay, so yeah. it's been a bad week in terms of that. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's been an adventure. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I'm really excited about today though. That makes me excited, more excited than working on my magnetometer. <laughs> Yeah, so we're really excited. We've got a guest joining us that listener Angie wrote in and said, you absolutely have to talk to this person. And we got a hold of him, and he was kind enough to join us. So welcome Dr. Ben Crosby to the show. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. No problem. Yeah, thanks Thanks for being on. So could you tell us a little bit about your, your background as far as how you got started in geology and uh, maybe where you did your undergraduate work? You bet. I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley. Um, I started out there in 1995 with the intention of becoming an architect. And <laughs> even though I absolutely loved that, um, I took one general education course in geology. It was taught by Dr. Walter Alvarez, the same guy who put forward the dinosaur extinction hypothesis. And I was in love. And for probably the next three years. I worked in Walter's lab as a graduate assistant or undergraduate assistant. And he uh, basically showed me that science was about solving unsolved mysteries rather than just learning fixed information that's already in books. And uh, that was how I had sort of left high school, thinking that science was a bunch of uh, folks just exercising tools that already had been established. But Walter told me that it was essentially a way of going after those things that we didn't have an answer to. That, as an intro geology teacher, that warms my heart so much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think we get so many people in geology, and that's the way that they find their way into geology. And it always surprises me, the number of people that are like, I took this class, I had this dynamic intro teacher, and so I changed from, you know, we had a guy today who came in, he changed from letters to geology because he's in love with his intro class. That's so awesome. And to take it from Dr. Alvarez is, I mean, awe now, Ben. <laughs> I definitely feel very so, fortunate. So what did you do when you were an undergraduate researcher in Walter's lab? Oh, wow. Um, I worked on a number of different projects. The very first one he asked me to work on was figuring out the timing of a series of stoplights and crosswalk signals across the street from the department. He felt like it wasn't really weighted properly for pedestrians. And so he literally (laughs) bought me coffee and biscotti and had me sit in a cafe 
and time exactly when people were allowed to cross. And so I think he was putting me to the test of whether or not I could collect data and interpret it. Um, and from that point on, he had me scanning uh, thin sections of um, pelagic limestone and doing hue saturation and brightness analysis, something he called chroma stratigraphy. He was curious how well we could correlate uh, colors to the... Uh, the chemistry of the samples that we had. Um, then I was asked to go and do some work uh, in Italy, and I was able to design my own research project I did side by side with a PhD student. My project was about evaluating the chemistry of the Eugabina layer, which is uh, a pelagic limestone that lies right above the KT boundary. My responsibility was to try to sample that and see whether or not we could determine ocean acidification occurred after the impact uh, struck the carbonate platform at Chicxulub. And so I was doing sort of ocean chemistry. But in order to correlate where my samples were taken from, I got to play with a magnetometer. Yay! At, uh, yeah. <laughs> at the Berkeley Geochronology Center, I used to spend my nights hanging out, uh, listening to the of the, uh, I guess it's what, liquid helium being pumped yeah, through the system? Yeah, right, the condenser that pumps it. Um, we still have that set up here. I spent many nights <laughs> asleep waiting for my stuff to cook, going yeah. to sleep to that like womb-like noise. <laughs> yeah, I did a lot of thermal demag down there in the basement. Oh, and yeah. uh, that was best. a lot of fun, slow, patient, you know, middle of the night, coffee drinking <laughs> yeah. yes, kind exactly. of thing. But, oh, uh, excellent. yeah, working there, I, I ended up working with a guy named John Glenn, who went and did a project in Namibia, where we did more paleomag, looking at the uh, Etendeka basalts that were erupted at the time of rifting between South America and Africa. And so I got a little more paleomag and AMS experience working with John. But I took a, I took a class from a guy named Bill Dietrich, who is a great geomorphologist, and once I took that class, I was inspired to keep studying geomorphology. And so my senior thesis was about understanding uh, river terraces along the South Fork Eel River in the coast ranges of California. And I got to go out and was one of the first people to get to use LIDAR to map uh, geomorphic features back in, I don't know, 1997, 1998, when I started into that thesis. And so that's wow. what led me to being a geomorphologist today. We just got a LIDAR just like a couple of years ago, and I know everyone's super excited about it. Um, I didn't know they were that. Well, I guess they weren't. You said you're one of the first to use it on geomorph features. Yeah, it's a pretty powerful instrument, but one that really only was developed in the late 90s and only in the early 2000s really became readily available to lots of people. Awesome. Hmm. So you said that you got very interested in geomorphology. So what exactly drew you into that and I guess maybe it'd be helpful to even explain maybe what that is for some yeah, of that's, our that's listeners that may not true. be familiar with the term. Of course yeah geomorphology you know is essentially the study of surface processes all of the things that shape the surface of the earth so whether we're talking about landslides or rivers or glaciers or any of those kinds of processes that make landscapes uh, make landforms uh, modify them that's what geomorphologists do. We study what processes shape the surface of the earth. And I think I fell in love with doing that because I felt like I was able to study processes that were occurring at the human time scale, at the time scale of observation. They were much more 
rapid than the sort of deep earth processes that I'd studied before or the deep time things that uh, I'd collect data on and interpreted. I felt like I was much more able to wrap my head around it, able to do experiments uh, that taught me about how uh, landscapes evolved over time that was much more satisfying, I guess, than the more interpretive work uh, deeper in earth history. It is kind of depressing um, for those of us that work like back in the, a lot of my rocks are neo-proterozoic and to think of, you know, how little is actually preserved of all the processes that were occurring right then. Um, it's really sad because I mean, we're talking few percents if that, right? Yeah, but it's still really important to study. I mean, what are we going to do? Just like turn our eyes toward the present? We don't want to do that. (laughs) There's a lot to learn back there. (laughs) Exactly. Um, That's a a point to hammer home, too, in terms of just geology in general, because we work under the auspices of uniformitarianism, right? So the stuff that's happening now is how it happened in the past, which, I mean, there's a whole philosophical argument about it, but that's the importance of looking at surface processes today so we can understand those tiny little slivers that get preserved way back then. Absolutely. And we look to the past, too, because what we see in the present is only driven by a very short, you know, and relatively consistent set of, say, climatic conditions or biologic actors that may be influencing things. And so we have to look back to to see a lot of processes that could someday occur in the in the near future. So, so, okay, so you got really interested in geomorph, and you did your se- senior thesis on it, but then what happened in your master's and your PhD work? I'm assuming you continued in that vein. I did. I took a little bit of a hiatus. I went and lived up in Arctic, Alaska, um, because I fell in love with and married a woman that is a native Alaskan, and um, went to go live with her family for about a year and a half. I worked in the world's largest lead zinc mine. I worked for the National Park Service creating place-based curriculum. I did some work, uh, substitute teacher. I served uh, creamed corn and mashed potatoes and uh, tater tots in the local <laughs> elementary school. It was, I, I, pre, I built prefabricated furniture, you know, it was all kinds of uh, crazy stuff. But it gave me a short respite away from sort of education and into the working world. But while I was there, I found that I really wanted to continue sort of, I don't know, intellectually uh, crushing uh, pursuits. <laughs> and so I talked to a bunch of people who had been grad students uh, at Berkeley the same time I was there and asked for their advice on who to work with, sent out a whole bunch of uh, applications and settled on working with a guy named Kellen Whipple at MIT for my PhD. I, I jumped right over the master's. It's not anything I recommend to my students nowadays. I think getting a whole diverse set of experiences is great. But I was one of those people who just leapfrogged the master's and went straight to Ph.D. John knows how that feels, too. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the process of finishing a Ph.D. and not doing a master's. <laughs> pre. So, yeah, it's, and it's a I difficult was, experience. Yeah, but. I was a dog walker after my master's for six months. <laughs> <laughs> it's sometimes good to take those breaks. I don't know. I, I was, uh, you know, I was kind of on the fast track, you know. We had, uh, we had a child relatively early in our relationship, and I knew that I wanted to get from, you know, student to, you know, employed person as quickly as I could. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I, I jumped over the postdoc thing as well. I have postdoc envy like crazy, you know, all these <laughs> postdocs that have all this time, you know, to study things and write proposals. They're doing the great stuff. Yep. I hear that. Um. Yeah. <laughs> 
I, I'm so excited to hear you say that you talked about place-based learning. Um, I teach a course called Native Science, which sort of tries to take that approach. But that's a whole nother show that I'm just going to I'll have you back for that because that's <laughs> that's sort of right in my wheelhouse, too. That sounds fun. <laughs> Excellent. Um, unlike unlike geomorphology, which I think John and I both know not much about. <laughs> Especially right. when it comes to sort of, I mean, we know about climate, we both have meteorology backgrounds, but um, this is pretty interesting because this is sort of the front line of climate change are the changes that we see on the surface right now, right? Yeah, certainly. I mean, besides just measuring meteorological variables, it's those uh, surface processes that are, are the most sensitive. I think hydrologists and geomorphologists and biologists are all sort of right on the front lines of of evaluating what changing climate will do to the world around us, the one we inhabit and rely upon. So what are some of the ways that these climate changes are changing the landscape around us right now? Like, What are some of the ways that are acting currently? Sure. I think probably the, the most pressing issue is what's called the amplification of the hydrologic cycle which essentially means that there's more energy that's being added to the surface of the ocean, which drives more evaporation, which puts uh, more moisture up into the air, which then can be distributed in ways that are inconsistent with the ways that it's been in the past. So the idea of more extreme conditions, uh, droughts, floods, um, we're anticipating that that's one of the major consequences of changing climate is this decrease in predictability of when and where precipitation, well, and how, in terms of what phase, it'll be delivered to landscapes. And uh, that has implications on water supply, that has implications on erosion, that has implications on you know, biologic actors that are out there, fish and, and bugs and uh, all others. So that's, that's one of the main ones that's out there. So basically, it's going to be even harder to be a meteorologist and have any credibility <laughs> in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, I think you know, besides just uh, the delivery of water to continents by precipitation, there's also going to be a big change in, of course, how coastal processes go. And that's not really my level of expertise, but um, it's something that is really important to think about as well, storm surges and other issues that, that are really important for coastal communities. Oh, right, because isn't I mean it's a ridiculously high percentage the number of people in the world that live along coastlines. So, um, absolutely, yeah, and we're already having to relocate some people, you know, out in these small Pacific islands because of the stuff. So, yep, that'll be a major adaptation in the uh, for the generations to come. All right, definitely. Um, I bet you saw a lot of this in Alaska. I did. There's, the, you know, the village that I lived in for a while, Kotzebue. Um, is up in the northwest corner of Alaska. It's essentially where the Brooks Range sort of peters out over into the Arctic Ocean, a place called the Chukchi Sea. And as the period over which there is active sea ice in that, uh, in that area diminishes, it means that there's more time for winds blowing across those waters to do erosion. And uh, even one of the first projects I started here uh, when I arrived at Idaho State University was to actually evaluate rates of coastal erosion from historic aerial photos. And we were able to see a clear acceleration uh, in the rates of erosion uh, as the amount of ice-free time on the Chukchi Sea increases. 
So there's a, a, a real neat relationship between the, the ice as sort of acting as a, an erosional inhibitor. And so if we have ice retreating back earlier and longer ice-free times, we have a more erosive environment for those coastal places and villages like Shishmaref, which has just received approval to be relocated. Uh, you know, I mean, there's it's the classic like National Geographic uh, spread where you see a, a house literally tipping off the side of an ocean right. bluff. You know, I mean, that's Shishmaref. In, in the village that I lived in, Kotzebue, they built, uh, I don't know what it was, I think it was like $10 million or $20 million seawall basically a whole iron barricade that runs along the entire front of that village in order to prevent the same thing that happened in Shishmaref. It's a relatively temporary measure. Kotzebue is only a few meters above sea level, but it, it'll it mean that no, there's no more beach erosion, but it also means there's no more beach for kids to play on. Okay. You know, there's no more beach for people to pull their boats up and offload salmon and, and cut and start the drying on the racks that had traditionally happened that made Kotzebue a cultural hub for, you know, millennia. So well, it's it's a big change. And when you put those up, I mean, you're just going to get, I mean, you just said it's only temporary, which is true, but you're just going to get increased erosion outside of the, you know, the periphery of that seawall too. So how long is that going to, is that going to last, right? Exactly. It is a temporary measure. Mm-hmm. That's unbelievable. Well, so you mentioned that you looked at aerial photos to look at the erosion rates. Uh, what are some of the ways that we can measure and look at this problem? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that you mentioned LIDAR, but I'm sure there's a variety of other techniques that uh, geomorphologists can use to do this now. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll just sort of take you on a little tour historically of where these data sets come from and, and, and lead you up to the present and maybe dabble a little in the future. But, you know, oh, what happened is, um, you know, the Arctic being as remote of an area as it is, it's, it's one of the last places to really receive our attention. So if you went to some lower 48 or anywhere down in temperate landscapes, you'd be able to find a host of aerial photos starting probably sometime in the 20s, but definitely in the 40s. Alaska did not see its first aerial photos until probably the 1970s, 1980s. And these were low resolution color aerial, uh, I'm sorry, color color infrared aerial photography. Um, And even those uh, don't do great coverage. It's not a perfect data set. And as a consequence, most of the topographic maps for places like Alaska were really, really low resolution. Uh, most of the topographic maps we have in the lower 48 are 1 to 24,000 scale. Maps in Alaska are 1 to 63,000 scale. And uh, from that, the DEMs that have been generated, the uh, digital elevation uh, data sets that we have for Alaska are also really low resolution, 60 meter, 90 meter resolution, while in the lower 48, 10 meter resolution, right? And so we're looking at being like 10 times uh, you know, behind, or not 10 times, uh, something like six times behind the kind of resolution that exists in the lower 48. And so um, this paucity of aerial photos of uh, low resolution DEMs has really made it tough to do studies that span different areas of the Arctic. Now that's all changing. And that's changing because we have high resolution satellite imagery. And that high-resolution satellite imagery can capture things now up to about 30 centimeters of resolution. 
And so, you know, if somebody's uh, dog is, uh, somebody's sled dog is laying in their backyard, when that photo is taken, you can see the dog. You can see the dog house. You can see, you know, whether they've got a red car or a blue car. You can see whether it's a, a SUV or a, uh, a convertible, right? You can d- discern this kind of information from high-resolution aerial imagery. And that's really great because it allows us to see things in some dimension, in some ways, in, in a two-dimensional sense. You can see, uh, you know, the lay of the land. But even more exciting is that some of the new uh, satellites that are up there are shooting imagery in stereo, meaning that, uh, you know, the camera, as it flies uh, over and orbits the Earth in space, shoots one photograph looking down at the landscape. And as it gets a little farther along, it tilts that camera and takes another shot back in the other direction. And so it sees that same landscape from two different perspectives. This is the same sort of methodology behind uh, stereo aerial photography that exists all over other places. It's uh, a technique called photogrammetry that allows you to take those two images and turn it into 3D data. And uh, just, I don't know, maybe a month ago or something like that, was released a product called Arctic DEM. That's just A-R-C-T-I-C-D-E-M. All just one word. If you were to Google that, you would find a website run by a guy named Paul Morin out of the uh, University of Minnesota. And Paul runs a group called the Polar um, Geospatial Center. And with assistance from the NGA, the National Geospatial Agency, the White House, uh, Blue Water Supercomputing, they are able to collect an area in stereo in the, uh, in the Arctic that's about as big as California every day. And so as these, as wow. these satellites fly over, they're essentially imaging an area the size of California. They take these stereo images, they feed them to the Blue Water supercomputer, run them through some amazing crunching algorithm, and without even needing ground control, they can generate digital elevation models that are two meters in resolution. That's better than what we have for the lower 48. And you know, whatever it was, a month ago, Paul and his group released the entire state of Alaska at two meter resolution. Now, it's not perfect. It's not exactly, it's not LIDAR, right? LIDAR is different because LIDAR is created by an airplane flying over or maybe an instrument mounted on a tripod. And it has pulses of light, laser light that's coming out that works its way down through the vegetation, through those open spaces that give it that dappled light on the forest floor, right? It goes down and it can actually receive bare earth resolution topography, right? So it tells you what's the topography under the trees. Now, Paul's technique, making two meter resolution, DEMs of the Arctic, does not see through vegetation. It sees the vegetation. It's just photos, right? That's all it is. But I tell you, two meter resolution for the entire state of Alaska processed in a matter of months, I mean, that's a godsend. And it's transformative. How many plane flight hours would that even be? You know, oh, it would have been possible. It would have been billions of dollars to collect that with lidar. You know, oh, right? You sent us this article that said that until this, we had a better topographic map of Mars than we did of Alaska. That's absolutely correct. <laughs> that's so sad. Yeah, that's that's amazing. 
Um, yeah. And on this Arctic DM website, it says that within two years that they will have a pretty good idea of all of the Arctic. And I mean, it's important that we have this because this is where we're seeing those sort of high resolution climate change impacts, not necessarily that they're happening there, but the effects of the worldwide climate change are happening there. Absolutely. The fastest changes that are occurring right now in response to contemporary climate change are in the Arctic. Right. This is a this is something called Arctic amplification. It has to do with, you know, the the delivery of heat to higher uh, latitudes. And, you know, not only is there a higher increase in, say, air surface temperatures, like two degrees more than the rest of the Earth. But, you know, it's a landscape that is still experiencing that glacial hangover you know, of the quaternary of the last couple million years of alternating cycles of cold, uh, cold times. And the, as a consequence, processes like permafrost, you know, are, are uh, prevalent in the Arctic. And, you know, if you take a landscape and you warm it up a couple degrees, you're going to see degradation of that permafrost. And so not only are the highest changes in temperature occurring in the Arctic, but it's also the place that is most susceptible to change. And that's, that's a really important uh, dimension of what's going on up there and why these data sets are going to be so useful because they provide that baseline that we can measure change relative to. So you said that there are some, some future ways that you were going to be measuring this or that you, tools that you hoped would become available. So what would be some of the, the tools that you would hope to be able to use to look at things like permafrost degradation? Sure. Well, there's, there's a whole new suite of uh, tools that are being discussed right now. Uh, one of them is called CubeSats. And uh, CubeSats are the idea that we can take, and in a similar payload to what we might use to put up one satellite, we can end up putting up a whole array of very small uh, satellites that do have cameras that can look back at Earth, that can take photos and send those back. Yeah, so it's not going to be 30 centimeters resolution, but these are satellites that are going to be geostationary, meaning that they stay in the same place and keep taking photos of exactly the same patch of Earth. And that's really important for being able to measure really rapid changes in things like sea ice or um, changes in vegetation, uh, changes in glaciers and their sort of surges, right? This really just ups the temporal resolution of the data that we're able to, to receive about these kinds of processes. CubeSats will be able to reveal things like when floods are occurring because you'll be able to see the way that rivers flood and, and, and spill over onto their floodplains in a way that we've never been able to resolve. Um, you know, there are you know, some folks out there that have come up with technologies like this where they put cameras on planes, fly them over cities, you know, and if somebody goes and robs your house, well, they'll be able to go back and flip through the time lapse of images and be able to find where the van came from that took your couch away, that took your flat screen away, and then they'll be able to track where that van went to after it took your stuff. This is the kind of thing that we're going to be able to be doing with these high temporal resolution uh, CubeSats that may have lower resolution in sort of uh, how well they can resolve image, uh, objects, but much higher temporal resolution. Well, and I think a lot of the rivers that we study and the landscapes we study are also, you know, in these inhabited areas. So it'd be really great to get data from, you know, the middle of Alaska where these processes are less encumbered by our activities. 
Yeah. And, you know, what Paul's doing in terms of mating this Arctic DEM, it's just the beginning. I mean, these photos uh, that are high resolution are just going to keep pouring in. And so we'll be able to make, yeah, it's not going to be day-to-day time lapse, but we'll be able to make time lapse of uh, measuring erosion, measuring the way rivers change, measuring the way hill slopes are falling apart, measuring the way coastal erosion occurs, um, using this same technology for, for decades to come. And uh, to be honest, we're in a place right now where there is, there's more data available to us than we have time or <laughs> techniques to be able to analyze. We are, we are living in a day, a day of data gluttony. So, uh, you know, I think that it's wonderful that these are, I don't know, these data sets are coming into hand. What we do with them is what I'm really looking forward to. So call to graduate students right there, right? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Begging to graduate students. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, even you said that, you know, you could see things like, uh, the doghouse or the the size of the car and the color of the car and all that i said man this this sounds just like a data mining paradise for some of the the data mining type people (laughs) not not even just geoscientists or earth scientists but there's so much data in there it is and i mean uh, i would say i am relatively data savvy i'm i'm okay with uh, dealing with these kinds of things but i just i i can't keep up with it to be totally honest you know and you know it's really tough to think about like, okay, well, I've got two meter resolution data for all of Alaska. I forget what it, you know, it's something like 40 billion, you know, points or something like that, right? Now, I don't have a computer that is powerful enough to be able to extract the, let's say the watershed for the Yukon River or any other large river in that landscape. If I wanted to analyze how slope changes as I go downstream or look at the slope distribution on the hill slopes in one of these large blocks of lands, that's really the realm of HPC. And, you know, that is the kind of thing that our future geoscience students are going to have to be um, becoming more and more versed in to deal with these extremely rich data sets. That or we'll just be finding, you know, very fruitful partnerships and people that do have those skills. See, Ben, this is your fault for not studying in like Connecticut or Rhode Island. (laughs) 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 You could get that data under control. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty Um, vast. Once you think of the whole Arctic, that's going to be an impressively overwhelming deficit. Yes, unbelievable. Um, Yeah. So these CubeSats, this is really interesting to me because you know, people, we spend so much money on science, but this is so much more than just looking at surface processes too, because if you add those up, I mean, think of the biological and, you know, uh, plant biology and animal biology, things that you could monitor with this. That's, especially in these places where, you know, there aren't people to do this. That's really interesting to me, um, besides the amount of data, but just the amount of um, breadth of the science that could be done with that data. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, if you, we could go back to the high resolution stuff and then step back to this. But, you know, in um, some of the articles that have come out about Arctic DEM, like the one from, uh, I think National Geographic points this one out, that you can resolve penguins in the (laughs) topographic data that you're generating uh, with this. Now, if, if you were to go to CubeSats, you know, instead of just, you know, seeing those penguins once a month, 
you know, you might end up being able to resolve them day to day as they migrate from one place to another. The same thing could be done looking at caribou migrations up in Alaska or um, even resolving things like seals out on the ice. Um, and that's, that's definitely within the realm of possibility. You could improve, for example, the kinds of things that we do looking at Arctic greening or the changes um, in uh, sort of plant productivity and greenness that we do with lower resolution uh, multispectral data sets right now, like NDVI. You could do something like that with a much higher temporal resolution instead of just getting these widely spaced shots and saying, oh, well, in the spring it's like this, in the fall it's like that. You could say, well, we're seeing that greening is happening three days earlier than it did, you know, last year and and actually have the kinds of temporal resolution of data to make those assessments of change through time. This has given me a really wow. good idea so, that I'm only going to refer to DEMs and such in terms of penguin scale now. <laughs> we have the resolution to half a penguin. That's it. That's yeah. my proposal. <laughs> I like it. It's much more fun than talking about pixels. So when you're looking at these data sets and trying to do some computation on them, uh, what kind of tool set do you use? I know there's a lot of geoscientists that are hanging on to Fortran because they love it. And then there's some people that are using <laughs> Python. There's some that are using C. And what are, what's the tool set that's used mostly for looking at these kind of satellite data sets now? Hmm, that's a great question. Uh, unfortunately, it's a hodgepodge. Um, there is no sort of one platform, one language, uh, one mechanism for doing this. And it really depends on what you're hoping to get out of it. If you are simply a browser, if you are a person that wants to see, uh, let's check out my field area and see how well uh, the data resolve uh, the topography I'm used to, or, or if you're just really curious or um, sort of opportunistically looking for something interesting, there's tons of web browsers that are out there that you can zoom in and see this two meter resolution data, the kind of things that gets plotted up into Google Earth. It's very accessible. You don't have to be a rock star programmer to start looking at and thinking about some of this data. Now that said, if you wanna move up the chain and start doing some computation and analysis, well, you know, products like, you know, GIS are really useful. And so whether you're using Esri's products or other things, um, that's a great way of dealing with chunks of the data, but there's no way you'll ever look at all of Alaska and be able to do some calculation using Esri's platform. That's not really how that, how that was intended. That's not built for that. And so right. as you inch your way farther up the chain and you start needing to, so for example, extract a watershed or do flow routing across an entire, I don't know, Yukon or something of that scale, you move into um, needing other tools. And you know some tools like uh, a, a product called Envy, which runs in a language called IDL, has been very successful at dealing with massive amounts of data and not sort of like blanking out or running out of memory uh, as something like MATLAB might do. MATLAB is right. useful for different parts of computation, but it doesn't handle the masses as well as IDL or Envy. But if you really want to do this right, you're going to go to some multi-threaded HPC supercomputer. You're going to get time on a supercomputer, work with somebody to create a really efficient set of code, and run your analysis there. That's the way that if you're going to do the complex stuff, it's got to go big. Right. 
So then, I not mean, in Fortran. Yes. Yeah. John John hates Fortran, so. Uh, yes. So there's a uh, there is a remote sensing part to this that we've talked a lot about, but I was I guess that there's also quite a bit of numerical modeling that goes on, probably still on the HPC side, to try to run these processes forward in time. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, one of the things about this high-resolution topographic data set is it allows us to use that as seeds for some other uh, numerical modeling tools that are out there. Now, whether or not we do a good job of numerically modeling Arctic landscapes, <laughs> I would call to question. You know, most of our awareness of sort of transport processes are really built for temperate landscapes. And there are um, platforms out there. There's one called Land Lab that I, I really favor um, that is a really well-constructed landscape evolution model, and it has a number of tools built into it that are appropriate for temperate landscapes. But if we want to talk about thawing permafrost, if we want to talk about um, transport of sediment in ice-dominated streams, we don't have those tools yet at our, uh, at our ready. You know, we're going to have to be working on those in the years to come. Um, and, of course, you know, to answer your question, they run best in HPC environments for sure. But, you right. know, when we are developing um, landscape evolution models, we often try to run them on as simple as possible a landscape so that we make sure that we're not trying to, like, throw the kitchen sink in and uh, <laughs> have a hard time interpreting how those numerical models work. And so it's much more important to start with simplified processes on simplified landscapes when developing new tools. And then you can build up complexity from there to where you may want to run it over large landscapes using a host of uh, competing processes where you would want to be on HPC. Hmm. Okay, so then so there's remote sensing, there's numerical modeling, and then I would assume that there's Shannon's favorite thing, which is field work. <laughs> Because uh, you have to go out and ground truth probably some of these or uh, geo-reference some of the images, I would imagine. I know you said that this two-meter one was, that was two meters without any boots on the ground work, but I would assume that's pretty common practice, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if we could go on another sort of uh, jump in the time machine sort of thing, you know, most of the Arctic work that was done in the past was either done using low-resolution satellite imagery like Landsat, uh, where we just measured aerial extent of change. And that ended up being quite useful. You could see rivers erode their banks. You could see uh, erosional features grow over time, but you couldn't measure things in three dimensions. Now, that, that then was where the realm of field work was done. But of course, if you're gonna go to the Arctic and do field work, it's expensive as hell. You've gotta have helicopters or you gotta fly around in little float planes and you only can go to a few select places and make a few select measurements. And so what this Arctic DEM, this two meter resolution data sets allowing us to do is to move into the realm of three-dimensional change detection, which is really, really important uh, because the major change that is going to occur in Arctic landscapes is something called thermokarst. You know, thermokarst is the idea that uh, when permafrost landscapes warm, they thaw, just like the chicken you take out of your freezer thaws, and it, it becomes soft and smushy, and the water might run out of it, and that causes a subsidence or a decrease in the elevation of the land. And so measuring subsidence is really only possible when you're looking at three dimensions. 
So that's why that data set's super important. Now going further ahead, because I, I'm a field geologist, I am not somebody who just sits and crunches numbers. You know, it is my passion to go out and get muddy and sweaty and lost and, you know, collect the real values. There is no replacing that with this, you know, high resolution DEM. You know, okay, great. So I can measure, let's say that there's a, a, a thermokarst feature that is, a, it's called a retrogressive thaw slump. It's a big muddy slurry that's washing off the side of the hill slope. Okay, I got two meter data. I'm going to be able to resolve, um, you know, 3D dimensional change. But can I really say what the character of the sediment is that's going into the river? Can I really say temporally what the turbidity is in the river and how that might affect um, aquatic invertebrates or salmon spawning habitat farther downstream? Absolutely not. There are limitations to where the DEM can take you. And if you want to look at things like the thawing of permafrost and the release of carbon dioxide from you know, soil organic matter that's there that's thawing out and becoming available to microbial digestion, you know, you thaw permafrost, um, a huge amount of carbon is there in that top three meters. And as that digestion occurs, it releases greenhouse gases. This is a huge positive feedback, right? Thawing permafrost creates microbial activity in long stored uh, carbon that then becomes digested by these microbes, released to the atmosphere, warms the Arctic a little bit more, which causes more thaw, which causes more microbial digestion, which causes more CO2, which causes more temperature, which causes more thaw. Round and round and round we go, right? Can I do that with Arctic DEM? Nope. I got to go out there. I got to put an instrument on the ground. I got to measure what's going on. And you know, no way would I say that this is replacing field work, but rather it enhances field work, it helps focus field work, and allows us to take local field work based measurements and then extrapolate them based on topographic metrics much more accurately across a broader landscape that we wouldn't be able to access, you know, using those same field work tools. Uh, and field work, I mean, the the worst part of it is doing field work up there is you have a really narrow window to do it too. So these processes you're studying are just like you were talking about earlier. They're in a very specific time frame, and outside of that time frame, it's just impossible to know, right? Absolutely. You just have to guess, like when you go back the next year and see how things change. Yep. Unless you had some cube sites taking photos for exactly. you every day over the last year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited about those. Like, this seems wonderful. Um, I knew that biology would be a huge influence in these feedback cycles. So that's interesting to hear you talk about those bacteria, because I knew that the, I knew that this permafrost business had a lot to do with bacterial processes, and it's not something you immediately think of in terms of geology. Um, yeah. So that's sort of bad news. Well, you know, there's a there's a number of dimensions biologically about changing climate up in the Arctic. So there's a, a, a classic set of papers, an idea of the greening of the Arctic. And the idea is that there's a transition as we go toward warmer temperatures, toward you know, maybe larger shrubs or, or a change in the type of vegetation that would then allow for more snow to be trapped, which would then allow for uh, better insulation of that warmed permafrost from the previous summer, which would allow for deeper thaw. You know, there's changes in terms of the advancing of the tree line. You know, what's going to happen is, as it's able for black spruce to move farther and farther north. That changes the, uh, the whole nutrient cycling and carbon budget for those landscapes. And we've been investigating in one of my graduate classes. Um, we've talked a lot about 
desert climates and we're just now moving into glacial climates, but I didn't realize sort of how big your plants are and how their root systems are set up, how much it affects things. I mean, just simple things like the water table and stuff like that, just from going from like a tiny tree to a really big shrub and how that root change is this huge thing that affects the entire environment that surprised me a lot. Absolutely. One of the things in my, so I teach intro classes now, just like Walter imposed upon me. Um, (laughs) And I'm hoping that I can inspire folks, but you know, I just try. Um, But one of the things that we talk about in that class is the idea that something like 70% of all the rain that falls on land is derived from transpiration of plants. Right. So when we talk about continental rainfall, we're not talking about evaporation off the ocean. That's the only place that that water comes from. We're talking about plants. So changing the, uh, the makeup of the surface has a big influence on how water is distributed, you know, through that, uh, preci- that ev- evaporation, transpiration, precipitation cycle. It's a big, big thing. Wow. So since we're talking about field work, Ben, and John's right, this is my favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think about... Um, what are the ancient analogs to sort of the environment you're looking at now specifically? So you're asking kind of how, uh, are there Arctic environments that existed past in geologic time or right. are like, you asking? The, where's the best ones to go look at? Like we talked about why it's important to look at surface processes today to interpret the rocks in the past. But you also mentioned, you know, it's important to look at the past rocks as well. So where do you find this stuff? Wow. Well, you know, that's really difficult. Um, If I think about it, I'm not sure that in the geologic record that there are clear evidence for things like, I don't know, let's say ice wedges or gelifluction or solifluction. I'm trying to think of the different sort of transport processes and the things that have shaped Arctic landscapes in the in the Quaternary. And I'm not sure that we have great records of that. When I think of ancient cold landscapes, I think of things like the Maranoan and this idea of snowball earth. But really, the records that we have are much more sort of depositional and drop stones. And they're sort of evidence of past glaciation, but not really the paraglacial processes, the the landscape processes that happen next to where glaciation was. And so I don't, I don't know that there's a good geologic record out there of that. Maybe, maybe we're stumbling on a gap. Yeah, that was kind of a trick question. I was really glad that that's how you answered that. Um, <laughs> I fell into your trap. Question. Yeah. That's <laughs> so a tell question me. in my class tomorrow, I'm going to say. Um, right. So how do you, these transitional environments, which is, you know, the paraglacial stuff around the glacials, how do you, how do you keep that in the rock record? Is it even, is it even there? Um, that's, that's really interesting to me just the, the amount of gap that we possibly have. Yeah. And I mean, when we talk about uniformitarianism and things like that, you know, where does it where does it leave us wanting, I guess? Right. Well, I mean, clearly there's, you know, erosional landscapes and depositional landscapes and, you know, the depositional ones are the ones that we can go and see in the rock record much better than the erosional ones. You're right. Yeah, you know, exactly. How how often can we go back and look in stratigraphy and and go and like look at an ancient mountain range? It's gone, you know. All we see are the deposits that it might have created as it eroded away. 
Right. So exactly. we're challenged by that. Hmm. That's what makes so, it fun too. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you talked about some of these feedback processes and, you know, some of these erosive processes, I guess I'm curious how, how linear are some of these are, does the feedback run away very easily? Is it roughly linear with temperature? Is it a, a tipping point type thing where it doesn't, it's not on, it's not on, it's not on. And then we hit a certain threshold and all of a sudden it turns on like crazy. I mean, how do these work in that kind of way? How do they scale? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, to be super frank, I don't know. And the reason why I say that, I, I, I that's an educated, I don't know. Um, <laughs> there are, only in the last, I don't know, maybe five years have people started incorporating permafrost processes into things like lands, uh, uh, global climate models. So in looking at the idea of thawing permafrost, being able to change greenhouse gas delivery up to, uh, up to the atmosphere, that is something we have just barely begun to nibble at. And so in terms of defining tipping points, I think we're still at a stage where, where we can't say what that's going to look like yet. Now, certainly for folks that have been doing atmospheric modeling and global climate models for, for much longer, things like the behavior of the hydrologic cycle globally, you know, other things, uh, those are a little bit better defined. But how thawing permafrost will affect um, these feedback processes, I think, are still under discussion. All right. Yeah, I don't have an answer for you on that. One of the things that we didn't mention, maybe just in a few sentences, is the idea of, you know, the people that inhabit the Arctic. And we did mention a little bit things like coastal erosion. But I think one of the important things is that um, we're going to be seeing a lot more uh, development and habitation and uh, access to the Arctic, whether that's just by the ocean as we see more ice-free time up there. Um, but things like the infrastructure that we use to move around on, whether that's roads or we move supplies around on, like oil pipelines and things like that, are really threatened by the changes uh, in the stability of the Arctic landscape. And I right. think that's going to be um, an important part of you know, motivating these studies of how Arctic landscapes respond to warming is what happens to all the infrastructure that's up there. And not just the infrastructure that's there today, but the kind of infrastructure we may need to be putting up into these places in the years to come uh, in order to extract resources or to, you know, facilitate development that might be expanding up into that region. Oh, right, because you don't want a big thermocarst event right underneath your oil pipeline because that's going to reinforce your positive <laughs> feedback loops immediately, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's, I would say it's harder to find a better broader impact section for writing a proposal (laughs) than that yeah Yeah, and and the you know if you want to if you want to talk about broader impacts that are beyond just sort of these economic ones you know the people who live up in the arctic my my wife's family are in upac you know there are people who you know place emotional value on the ability of being able to go out and harvest caribou salmon you know other foods from the land and as the landscape destabilizes, it really calls to question, 
you know, how they're able to go out and to do their subsistence practices and whether or not the, the organisms that they're harvesting, you know, whether their migration routes, their migration timing, their abundance, whether those are going to be changing as well as we see um, invasive species moving up into this area as the sort of like frost-free, you know, period uh, increases and temperatures become warmer. Those are important impacts as well from my perspective. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds very similar to a lot of things that Shannon discusses in her her class that she's teaching right now. I'm I'm telling you, we're having you back on, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm just going to call you and we're going to talk about this stuff. <laughs> that works for me. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so one question that, that we normally use as a, a sort of final question, one that I like to hear people talk about, is what tools are necessary for your everyday life and how has technology impacted your daily routine so how you work or how you just get things done hmm i don't know um i hope i don't sound like a luddite but sometimes i feel that technology is getting in the way of me getting (laughs) things done i mean i I uh, I deliberately find times to uh, go to libraries and coffee shops or do things at my house or I have a big red cushy chair in my office that I go and sit in specifically so that I can distract or uh, distance myself from the distractions that come from my computer. Now that's it. Man after my own heart. <laughs> oh, watch out! <laughs> but but you know to be totally frank with you. I carry my iPod around. I've got my, or not iPod, iPad, iPod, ancient history, right? I've got my <laughs> smartphone. I've got a laptop. I've got a desktop computer, you know, and if you pulled the people here in my department, oh, they'd say, oh my gosh, that's Ben. He's the one that's trying to get us all to make geologic maps on our tablet <laughs> computers. You know, I, I am, I'm that young kid who's selling the technology and it's because I really do feel that these tools are the ones that our next generation of geoscientists are going to be using. I don't, I don't hesitate for a moment to say that. Now, whether it, whether it gets in the way of sort of the uh, pedagogy of teaching people geosciences, well, that's a great discussion that we could have maybe on another, on another podcast. But, you know, <laughs> I'm also madly in love with high temporal resolution data acquisition. So, you know, if I can go out and I can throw a sensor on a river and it makes measurements every five minutes for me of how the turbidity is changing, I love it because I can say something about when and where pulses of sediment are coming from or, or evaluate how biological systems are interacting on, on a real-time basis with sort of geomorphic drivers. That's amazing. That's wonderful. That was impossible, you know, before these sort of cheap and cheerful sort of sensors were were in our hands and you know i'm i'm in love with uh deploying technology i got time-lapse cameras that i put out on log jams that take pictures every hour and i can run movies for the last summer that show the log jam creeping away slowly and then big events happening and then it creeping away and then a stasis when nothing happens it's absolutely beautiful to interact with technology but it can be uh, so much data that you lose track and and sort of lose track of the original hypotheses that you might have been going after. It can complicate your interpretation. We've had some absolutely wonderful discussions in my research group about how we've gone from geosciences being a relatively data poor science where interpretation was really important, going back to an earlier theme, 
to where we now have so much data that it becomes essential for us to be really good, um, I don't know, uh, we've, we've become very critical of our data, where we've had to interrogate it to assess whether or not we can trust it, whether or not uh, statistically we can demonstrate the kinds of uh, trends that w might be appearing there. And I think that, that we're really challenged as I switch, let's say, from you know going out with my auto level and a stadia rod to measure some <laughs> topography where I may come home at the end of the day with 50 topographic data points along my cross-section to where I go out there with a ground-based LIDAR and I come home with millions, right? What right. do I do with millions of data points? Right. It's a it becomes yeah. a much greater challenge for interpretation as we move toward these richer and richer data sets. And it's both a blessing and a curse at the same time. It drives geoscientists to having to be more quantitatively savvy, more statistically savvy. Um, and I think it's a wonderful thing for our science. But it's a challenge to the multiple generations of geosciences that we have out there in the workforce right now, whether we're talking about our undergraduate students or whether we're talking about our emeritus professors or people, you know, at the end of their career in the privates. You know, that's a huge challenge for all of those people to get along with their varying skill sets and varying sort of accessibility to these kinds of data sets. R.I.P. Alidade. R.I.P. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I think that was an excellent summary, <laughs> actually, of of had the the bipolar nature of technology and geoscience. But well, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show. It's been an absolute blast talking oh, to yeah. you, and it sounds like we're going to have to have you back on at least once more to talk. I've got, I've got native three science lined with up. Shannon. I've, yeah, I've got three of them lined <laughs> up exact for you, Ben. So hopefully you enjoyed. Let's yourself. do it. <laughs> yeah, I did. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. All right. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Have a great day. Man, that was a super exciting glacial talk. I am. The more I learn about them, the more interested I am. I don't know about you, John. Well, yeah. I mean, it was really so much more to all these amazing facts about how the landscape evolves and about how climate changes it. Uh, things that I don't really think about. Uh, no. And shockingly, um, I have a really good segue into some of the things that we talked about for the fun paper. Yeah. So that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun paper Friday. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So, we have too much fun with that. We do. I mean, they're just cowbells, but they're excellent. <laughs> um, so I found this, and this is just sort of an extended abstract um, from a, a conference that you and I both love, uh, the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in Houston, and it is called the Dorsa Argentia Mars, Comparison to 5900 Terrestrial Esker Systems and Statistical Tests for Topographic Relationships. Sounds thrilling. <laughs> 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 it is, though, man. Eskers, if if our listeners remember the glacial show, they're so weird. They're inverse rivers. Um, we just talked about them in my class, and I had students present papers on them, and I, I still don't get them. They're so strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and you're right. This is an interesting paper. The title is just a little yeah, complex. It's kind of dry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, dry, get it, like Mars. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> and this is by Butcher et al., by yes, the way. Yes, yes. Um, I was too excited about the name. So these Esker <laughs> things, like we've said in our glacial shows before, they're these inverse rivers. So they form in, you see tunnels underneath glaciers, and basically, well, what I've learned is that this is sort of a sedimentation that takes place within these tunnels. And so once the glacier's gone, you're left with these big long mounds sometimes they're straight sometimes they're kind of sinuous uh of sediment that was where the tunnel was under the glacier right right um so what does this have to do with mars well it turns out in the argentia argentia sorry the dorsa argentia region that there are a lot of these weird sinuous ridges that there are assuming we didn't know what they were for a long time and, you know, I think they probably abbreviated DA in the paper. Uh, yeah, I'm going to do that <laughs> uh, for, for that exact on. reason. <laughs> so, yeah, so they we see similar features on Mars, and by the extreme extension of uniformitarianism, yes. <laughs> we could say that a process probably operates on another planet similar to what does here, especially given what we know now about Mars' past. Right, exactly. Um, and so this is just a statistical analysis of these features and you see these a lot in the Canadian Shield um, from the research that my students have done. They're talking about how these really get um, preserved in places where you have basement rock, not sedimentary rock. So this is also kind of interesting um, here. And when you look at these pictures of these maps, they do look a lot like the Esker systems that you see up in the Canadian Shield. And so that's kind of the point, is that they did the statistical analysis on the topography and said, hey, this is really similar to what we see in Canada. So this points back to something Ben was talking about, using remote sensing and needing good quantitative and computational skills, because we cannot go boots on the ground on Mars, but we do have data from orbiters, and in Canada, we can get very similar data. Right. Well, now we can, um, <laughs> because these right. are, yeah, these Eskers are, you know, up in the Canadian Shield, so in the really high Arctic part of Canada. So that's pretty funny, because I wonder now, after talking to Ben, how much of that data was available before this Mars data was. <laughs> Yeah, you know, <laughs> exactly. That's crazy. Um, so this is just, I mean, it's just a really simple sort of abstract, just a simple statistical analysis of these features, just to say, geomorphologically speaking, they look similar. Right. And there are some relationships like the longer they are, the straighter they are generally. Right. Which is exactly like the relationships of the Eskers on Earth. So one thing I didn't understand is that they did not include, they said, standalone segments less than 10 kilometers in length in their analyses. And I don't really know why they didn't do that. Um, maybe just because they were singular and maybe the data, they weren't really sure less than 10 kilometers. I'm not really sure why that is because Esker systems are all different kinds of lengths here on Earth. I don't know if it's that or maybe if it's sinuous, there's not enough periods of the sinuosity that uh, okay. <laughs> it, it, you don't have enough wiggles to get something statistically significant i'm right. not really sure yeah so that that was an interesting part um that i guess if we could have been there and gone to the talk we would have understood a little bit more about uh most likely yes uh-huh. uh also what i thought too is you know how you see these pictures 
um, from these different planetary pictures and how they're kind of inverted. You see the the craters as mountains. So right. that, that was funny to me, thinking that these eskers are really inverted rivers, and so hopefully they were in the right frame of mind to view these pictures. <laughs> and these <laughs> right. truly are ridges and not, not valleys. It seems like something I would accidentally do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, and in the conclusions, they did something I really like to see in these extended abstracts where they just numbered their conclusions. Yeah. And like, mm-hmm. here are the three big takeaways. Here's the take-home points that you need to remember from this, mm-hmm. uh, which is always nice. But they emphasized in there that these look very similar in map view, and that probably means that they were in a very similar uh, ice sheet system that had some kind of proglacial lake termination. Uh and it was thinning and depositing these, very similar to what's here on Earth. So it's just kind of a nice confirmation of maybe what we know here happens elsewhere. Right. And what we don't understand about Eskers here, we probably still don't understand about Eskers on Mars. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I took that as well. <laughs> and I mean, and this isn't a super outrageous uh, hypothesis either, because these are high latitude. We didn't mention that in the beginning. But, you know, these are on high latitudes on Mars. And so... No reason there couldn't be a big proglacial lake hanging out there. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, and so they're, what, uh, 75 south in one of these maps? Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. It's really cool. There's really great pictures in this, you know, small little extended abstract, so. And everybody likes looking at pictures of another planet. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you have an idea for a fun paper, or if you have a guess that you would like to suggest, for example, we had been on just now because listener angie wrote in and suggested him so we're always happy to hear suggestions feedback comments corrections all of that uh, from our listeners and in fact next week's show is directly answering one of your audio comments Mm, it was a hard one too so it was can't wait to do that one (laughs) but if you have anything you'd like to send to shannon how can they get a hold of us we are show at don'tpanicgeocast.com and keep those awesome audio comments rolling in you can find us on the web, don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And sometimes we hang out in the swung slat chat room, swung.rocks on the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. Right, and this kind of points back to something that Ben was talking about. We're using remote... Uh, bleh, remote? <laughs> uh, remote sensing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 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 The Dorsa Argentina. Ar- Argentia? Argentia? Ar- <laughs> Ar- <laughs> Argentia. Okay. Are we pirates? <laughs> Ar- um.